Welcome to Recruiting Daily's Use Case Podcast, a show dedicated to the storytelling that happens or should happen when practitioners purchase technology. Each episode is designed to inspire new ways and ideas to make your business better as we speak with the brightest minds in recruitment and HR tech. That's what we do. Here's your host, William Tincup. Ladies and gentlemen, this is William Tincup. You're listening to the Use Case Podcast. We have Laura from Eastside Staffing on today. We're actually going to be talking about services uh, for the first time uh, from the sale perspective. And I'm, I'm excited to, to explore this with Laura. Laura, would you do us the, and the audience a favor and introduce yourself? Yes. Good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you for having me, William. So I'm Laura Mazzillo. I own Eastside Staffing, which is an HR recruitment firm, so specific for the HR community. I launched it seven years ago. I'm based here in New York City, and we're all surviving this pandemic together. So we are recording this in a wild time in our history. So if you're listening to this 20 years from now, that's what's happening. Um, but yeah, I, I specialize solely in the placement of HR professionals, which is a really kind of niche and unique market. So HR, the, the broad tapestry, so you can go all the way from HR generalist to some of the specialist positions, um, and you start, I would say, an HR director and go up, or where you tell yeah, me where... exactly. I mean, it's it's evolved. I think when I started the business, I got more, and we, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but there was more like mid level roles that people right. would call me for. And I'm finding that the last two years, it's been mostly leadership and executive positions, which I think could be, I mean, it's partly due to the service that I provide, but I think also just that there was a time when companies used external firms for every search and didn't have any trouble getting permission to do so. And I think now it's like, oh, we only have budget to use an external search firm for something, you know, 200K and up. And I don't, I don't always know why that is because sometimes those 70K jobs to fill are just as hard. Um, But, you know, as we know, and as we often hear, it's a cost issue because they don't know how to explain the value add. Right, right. And so with the, with the, with, with executive search or uh, yeah. with the search that you try with that you do, um, I'm assuming it's a retained search uh, or do you do some contingency? Yeah, so I work on a container model. So the retained model is uh, three payments typically, right? So they get a third up front, a third when the resumes go out, and then a third at the end. Right. And frankly, that's a lot of math for me and my HR leaders. So we sure. often just have decided it's easier to do it in two installments. So I just charge um, like a smaller amount of money up front just to retain me in the process and the rest at the end. So in industry lingo, it's called a container or a contained search. Right. Uh, so, so when they want to hire you and you talk to them, so whether or not you reach out to them or they reach out to you. So let's just let's just say that you've had your first call what what typically happens what are the questions that they ask you yeah it's so interesting there are kind of like two schools of people right there's the ones who really understand the value i can bring and those calls are really a lot more pleasurable for me where they really want to understand my values my philosophy my outreach they ask me a lot of good questions about you know, how I approach candidates and how I build relationships. And they want to understand like my story because they understand that I'm actually a representation of their brand. And so they want to make sure there's an alignment, not only for our two companies, but even for the two personalities, because we have to work together so intimately through the search. Then there's kind of the other school that's looking at it just strictly from a cost perspective. Like what are your fees? What are your guarantee period? What's your contract? 
Um, and those are the ones that I always have a red flag with because I feel like it's not actually just about the price, it's about the value. Um, so there's kind of two schools. I think it's, it's funny, I know you um, were kind enough to share the recent blog post I wrote, which was sort of this, I used a Ferrari analogy just because I love you know, Italian sports cars. And I, I thought that this kind of, there are the people who come to me and are like, whoa, that's expensive, or that's, we can't afford you, or we can't pay for that. And they almost sort of guilt me to try to reduce my fees or to kind of get me to feel bad about charging. And as I don't know if it's being a woman or being an entrepreneur or what, but that can often make me feel really uncomfortable. And I've learned that that it isn't coming from necessarily like a mean place. It's coming from a place where they don't necessarily understand the value that I'm bringing, that it's not just the amount of money they're spending, right? Like, of course, a Ferrari costs more than a Honda. You shouldn't make Ferrari feel bad about what they charge. You should just recognize that obviously you're getting something different for that price point. Yeah, you're off, you're awfully giving, and uh, potentially even forgiving. Uh, I think some of it does come from a manipulative place. Um, and in fact, I used to have these keywords in my head that if if a prospect ever said the keywords, I I didn't the call, and it was yeah. fat, fast, easy, and cheap. Yeah. If, if at any point I heard those three words, any of those words, I would say, hey, listen, we're not going to be on the same page here. And yeah. I'd explain to them, I was cordial, uh, that, you know, hey, listen, you're using the words fast or easy or cheap, and uh, those words don't exist in my world. Yeah. So we're already at a disconnect, and we've just started a relationship, so we can part as friends. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, you've, you've crossed a line that you didn't know was there, but I know what that symbolizes and what it will eventually lead to, and uh, there's no need. So, so we're just going to part as friends, and I hope you the best with whatever you're about to do. Uh, but I, I, exactly. It's learning how to say no. And yes. I actually wrote down a quote that someone, this guy Joe in our Twitter network, had, had mentioned to me, and I wrote it down months ago, and it says, it's okay for people to ask, and it's just as okay to say no. That's right. And that for me has been a really big lesson because I am a people pleaser. I am a very kind and empathetic person. So my, you know, I come from, it's funny, like we have my, I'm staying up at my parents' house right now in suburbia. We have my younger cousin just came with his wife and his baby. And you should see my mom upstairs just cooking meals like it's a factory. You know, we're having a blast with it, like feeding and cooking and loving. And I realize that comes, that philosophy comes into my work, right? You want to nurture, you want to make sure everyone's comfortable, you want to make sure everybody's happy. But actually in business, there's a downside to that, which is like, wait a second, I'm the one in control of this process. And also I'm the one that knows the worth of my work. And it's taken a long time. I mean, it's taken other clients saying to me like, hey, look, you're undercharging. Or <laughs> hey, like, you know, and that's, it's, it's funny because like a lot of men will say to me like, God, I've never heard that. I'm like, right. Cause you always charge what you were worth. But I kind of made the mistake of going in under. Um, well, now we're about to get into uh, gender, gender related pay equity issues, which yeah. quite frankly, it's, it's my, my research on this topic has been very fascinating and kind of, it's led me to believe and kind of, kind of deal with things and, uh, that men, they, they, pop out of the womb confident in, yeah. you know, in, in, in a way that basically they'll ask for crazy things in okay. a negotiation. Like yeah. it's just normal. Like, yeah, I need yeah. access to the company plane. You know, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. need to go to the masters every year. It's like, what? 
And where, because, you know, by and large, and these are generalizations, of course, but yeah, by and look, large. I was, wait, I have to just say this before I forget. I once had a male HR candidate who I love, who now works for a big tech company on the West Coast. I placed him here in New York maybe six years ago. He was making 90K. He wanted 150 on a base. This was before there was the New York law. Now you can't ask what they're currently earning, right? But right. then you could. He went, to, I did not coach him on this, so everyone knows this. Okay, he went into the hiring manager. It was in this final round, and, and she said, what are your comp expectations? And he said, I'm currently on 90 on a base. I need to be at 150 on a base. And she smirked, smiled, jotted it down, and got him that number. Yeah. That has never happened yeah. with a woman in my career. <laughs> to this day, I, I think of that moment, and I think, wow, we have so much to learn from him. Well, and, and some of it's... No shame. I want 60K more. That's it. Yeah. I did the, do you want me to work for you? Great. That's yeah. fantastic. This is the price. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is interesting because it's, it's both asking for the unreal and, and not dealing with, with reality, but it's also not being uh, practical. I think that men <laughs> can cannot be practical and not even and disassociate not even think about it just like yeah i need a car i need <laughs> it's just like right. why do you right. need a car i need, i don't even need a car i just ask for a car just see if they say no you know like, yeah. eh. it's um, almost fun, like a gambling thing <laughs> it is yeah. so so in in working with the firm so one of the things that that i want to kind of unpeel is um when you talk to somebody and you go through all those questions after you get off the call, how do they how do they make the case for working with Eastside Staffing? Yeah. Again, I remember we were talking kind of these two schools, right? So the one who sees my value and the one who maybe just sees it as a as a cost. Right. I think there's probably two different conversations that go on depending on like person A or person B. So person A who sees my value probably has a better ability to influence and push back. So they can go to their CEO. And again, we don't, we don't want to stereotype, but look, you and I are blunt people. So these are probably mostly women running HR departments going to a male CEO. So person A who sees my value probably goes in there and says, we need Laura. Our HR department has this tough search. I just want to outsource it to her. Let her help us. Let her teach us. Once we hire her once, she'll teach us how to do behavioral interviews. She'll teach us how to kind of come through our biases as best as we can. And then we can take those tools going forward blah, 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 here's, how, here's what it looks like, and probably get it signed right away. Person B probably goes in there and says, um, so I called Laura, and she's a little more expensive than some of those bigger generalist firms, so I don't know if we want an expert or if we should just hire that, you know, Joe Schmo we always use, who's cheaper, what do you think? And then the CEO is probably like, I don't care, just maybe go with the cheapest firm then, right? Because right? he may not understand why I would be a better option for them, what they would actually learn. So specialization in recruiting, especially when it deals with HR, yeah. you know, especially at the level that you're playing, right? What do they, what do they get? What are they, right. what, like, why wouldn't they do this search internally? Yeah. Well, first of all, you got to release the guilt of asking for external help. So I always remind right. people, I mean, if you're a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist, you have to see a psychiatrist yourself. It's part of the training. So if you're an athlete, you see other athletes to get coached, to train. It's very normal in any expertise or profession to seek external counsel and external help. For some reason in recruitment, this is still seen as a defeat. Like, 
I shouldn't have to go outside. And I'd like to normalize that a little bit. I'm not saying you should go outside for every single search. Of course not. But there are times, and the reasons should be, I mean, they're endless, the reasons why you would need to go outside. But first of all, we just have to normalize that, right? It's not, it's not weird, right? Michael Jordan does not feel guilty when he has to pay an external coach to help him learn how to shoot better. It's part of his, like, development, his skill set. Um, so I think that's number one, first of all. But I think that's where a lot of this gets stuck. And then I think that people don't always realize that an expert knows your space really well and that the candidates prefer it. So if, you, if, if the company was to ask five candidates, would you prefer to work with Laura, who really understands HR, who takes a coaching approach with you, who gets to know you and goal set with you? I mean, I work with my candidates to make sure they know exactly what they need and want going forward. We write that data out together. We evaluate it. We make sure that whatever I'm presenting them with is a true match for them. You know, I don't, a generalist recruiter does not have the time or desire to do that type of deep dive. But that deep dive is it also makes sure that the person is a good organizational match and that we're not just kind of like throwing a button seat. Um, so, I mean, those are like the first two things that come to mind. But of course, I think also a, a company should look at recruiting as a learning experience. And so if you're working with an expert who understands a specific space, you will learn something. Maybe what you will learn could be so, it could be so, so wide. I mean, you could learn how to literally hire better. You could learn how to overcome your bias better. You could learn how your team should be structured. You could learn new ways to interview, new ways to ask questions on interview. You know, these are all things that a recruiting consultant who's an expert will teach you and even if you're an internal recruiter you should want to learn new things so three questions first question is the deciding factor to go outside what's that so far that you've i mean you've been doing it seven years but you did it before that as well for other folks um so i mean you started when you were like six so you know (laughs) (laughs) so the the tipping point like how do they how do they yeah. know that they should they should definitely fight to go outside? I would say nine times out of ten, they've looked themselves for like a month. So probably for mm. the first thirty days, the internal recruiter has tried, and then probably comes to their head of HR and says, "I don't know, we're hitting walls, right?" So it could, and that's I prefer that. By the way, like I'll often ask clients, like, "How long have you been on this?" And they'll be like, "Uh, a day." Yeah. And that's okay too, but I also think when they've done it for 30 days on their own, they are coming to me with some data points of like, here's where we're struggling, here's where we've gone wrong. Um, and that's good, because I think then they've already shown a little bit of an investment in terms of what's been the struggle. And then it's, it could be a couple of things. They could literally just not be able to find the talent because they're just really bad at sourcing or they don't have time to source and headhunt. So when I start a new search, like I might be headhunting, sourcing, screening for like four or five hours a day, their internal recruiter can't do that if they have 20 requisitions open. Right. spend four hours a day on each search. Um, So that's usually the issue, like the time for sourcing. But then the second issue could be they have roadblocks that they don't see, which is actually kind of fun. So they might say like, I don't know, we thought our budget was 100K for the role. Everyone we're talking to is at 250. Like something isn't connecting. Right. Um, and we can't figure it out. Like, are we asking for too much? Does this skill set even exist? Are we creating something new? 
so often they're coming to me either with like the time issue, the sourcing issue, or this kind of confusion around the brief itself. They don't know if they're like on track, if it's a fillable job even. So those are fun problems to solve because usually it's really an issue of totally like redrafting the job. I was about to ask you, do you typically take their job description and go with it or do you kind of go through it with them and prioritize and kind of get some of the extraneous stuff out of there like what's what's your what's your bit with the job description yeah i usually like to just rewrite it all together uh, and modernize it because sometimes it's just sometimes it's not so bad in terms of the content but it feels so corporate and i try to remind clients like people don't really want that anymore it's not right especially in new york city sometimes there's still this weird like polished illusion, right? Where everything should be really buttoned up and sort of fancy and formal. And it's just like, that's not the future of HR anymore. People don't want it to feel stuffy. And I hear from candidates like, oh, I saw this job description, but it just read so boring, so corporate. And that may not be the truth. Like the company might actually be pretty fun and energetic and the job. So I I try to get them to make sure the job description feels aligned with the brand. And so I'll take what they have and we'll edit it and then and we'll play with it together. And then, of course, the job description is how we create the behavioral interview. And I'm now I just do structured interviews on every single search I have because if everybody's saying they want diversity and inclusion and, of course, equity, it starts with structured interviews. You know, you can't right. have just like a wing it kind of process. Right. So do you well, think they learn? That's from where biases kids? come in, right? Exactly. So if you, if you treat one gal different than you treat another you know gal or guy or whatever then you've thrown some biases just accidentally not, not yeah. even thinking about it and we um, all have them. it's sort of like this funny thing where i think when i talk to internal recruiters about that step they'll say to me like oh i don't need training on bias or or don't include me in that part i'm like no no, no we even i do like i do you do they all do we all do like it's this is we are all in this as a team um and so we all want to we all should want to learn to improve so finding the talent, engaging the talent, selling the company, selling the position, the gig, etc. You find yourself kind of, you know, on this journey with candidates. How do candidates respond to working in, you know, working with an expert yeah. as opposed to working with someone that maybe is a great recruiter, but not maybe doesn't understand HR in, in a way yeah. that you do? That's funny. I, I used to see it more in tech recruiting. You know how, obviously we all joke like engineers always have funny posts about recruiters who don't know the Mm -hmm. difference between the programs they use (laughs) right it's like and i used to think in hr i mean when i I started in hr recruiting in 2007 so 13 years ago i would i always would wonder that like do they actually care that i only work with hr and for sure yes i have found that they appreciate that i understand what they do number one they don't have to explain it to me of course i'm always learning and tell them that i Again, I, I come from a place of humility and want to learn, but I don't come from a place of I have no idea what that means that you're doing that. Right. Um, but also for HR professionals, as we both have talked about, there's a guard up sometimes, which is just a human reaction to a job that often requires a really neutral Switzerland approach. I mean, they have to be pretty even keeled at work. They're kind of making sure the company feels safe, that the employees feel safe. They have a hard job and they often have to remain kind of emotionally guarded. But to work well with a recruiter, you have to have a certain level of intimacy and trust because I want to make sure they're happy. I want to make sure that they feel comfortable. So we have to break down those walls. And I think it's easier for them to do that with me 
because they know I'm a safe place and I understand who they are and what they do. So they don't have to be on with me. Right. Um, I think when they're working with recruiters who don't get it and who don't really understand it, they're back in the driver's seat again of trying to explain it. And they're, you know, all of a sudden they're not able to just be soft with them. So I think there's the subtlety of the emotional engagement that helps when you know someone understands what you do. So two more things. Have you, in your 13 years, have you ever had to place a good person in kind of a bad situation? Once. Um, yeah. Once, and I, I had to, yeah. And I, I learned the lesson the hard way. I had a couple of candidates say, Ooh, I'm surprised you're working with that guy. He has a really bad reputation. I was like, really? Hmm. That's so weird. He's been so nice to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it was a really good lesson learned of like, A, listen to your community and yeah. try and probe deeper. B, never take searches on when you're feeling kind of desperate. Like I think it was a place a couple years back where I was like, oh, I could use this. This is, you know, and that's, as my dad always reminds me, try to try to be a business owner feeling like you always have a million dollars in your checking account. Like what right. decisions would you make? And it's true. And I would have never chosen that. So that has changed a lot for me. I mean, I've turned down two searches already in 2020 that I could have used in this pandemic, but where I felt like that those are not safe environments for an HR professional. Well, so, and that's that that also be the long term part of your firm is that you'll you'll get known for not putting people, which will help candidates, but also will call out people that that uh, that just wants you to go find people for them, and they're going to burn through them. So. Right, right. And when we talk about being values focused, we have to remember that as external, you know, vendors, support providers, service providers, we have also, as you said, the obligation to look at our own values. If you don't value fast, easy, and cheap, then the answer has to be no when you hear those words. That's right. Right. And, and for me, it's like there is a, my values, which my website is um, undergoing a transformation, so I'll send you the link when it's up. But my values are kindness, curiosity, and humility. And so those three words are really what carry me through a process. So if I have a client who's not willing to be on the journey with me with kindness, curiosity, and humility, it's going to be a tough match. Right. Um, because I believe that recruiting is a discovery process. It's an unco you know, we're uncovering a lot together, and there has to be a willingness to participate that way. So it's, yeah, I mean, I think it becomes easier to say no when you really do stay aligned with your values. So two last things. One is, is a prospect that you never had worked with before, and they kind of got it innately, you know. But, but how did you coach them? Because you had never worked with them before. How did you coach them to kind of sell Eastside staffing internally? Yeah, it's funny. I can only think of one example in the last five years where I had this, I loved working with her. And she she saw my value. She saw the excitement and partnering with me. And she said to me, okay, I'm going to have to convince my CFO because we haven't used a search firm in over 20 years. Like they hadn't had, they had such good retention. They really hadn't um, had openings like at the senior level. So she was kind of asking my opinion on how she was going to word it. And I, I guess we came up with it together, but she basically just said, I'm going to just go in there and say, I do not have the time to search for this because I know how long this will take if I did it. With, and I'd have to eliminate all the other searches. Like I'd have to put everything else on hold and I don't have HR network. So like she looked at my followers and she said, okay, you have 93,000 followers on LinkedIn. You've been only recruiting HR for the last 15 years. Like I can explain to him that you're the person who can run with this and fill it pretty efficiently. 
and, and we manage expectations because I said I could probably fill a job truly in six to seven weeks, which in the HR search area is pretty quick. And so she went in there and basically just explained to him, look, this is, I don't have the time or resources. Laura has the network. She has the expertise. She can get this done for us in six weeks, um, you know, plus or minus a couple of weeks. She's going to give us data. She's going to train us so that I can take those tools and use them forward. And then we got the approval and, and we actually filled it in. I remember like six weeks and two days, everybody was happy, including my candidate. And I think it was an issue of us just all feeling like it made sense. I didn't have any guilt, right? None of my insecurities were popping up. I knew I could help them. She knew, again, she wasn't coming from an insecure place, even as an internal recruiter. She knew that she needed the help and was confident in admitting that. And that's part of it. It's kind of tackling our self-worth to say, no, we actually all need each other here. This is, this is going to make sense for all of us. I love it. I love yeah. it. So that flew by. Uh, and uh, again, talking about the use case for services is so much different than than the use case for software. So I really appreciate I really appreciate your time, A. Laurel. I know how busy you are, and uh, I want to thank the audience for listening as well. So thank you. We'll all talk soon, I'm sure. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Recruiting Daily's Use Case Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and hit us up at recruitingdaily.com.